Hey, everybody. Welcome to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. I'm Christy Brower here with my sister, co-host and partner in crime, Katie Weaver. Hey, Katie. Hello. We're so excited to be bringing you our joint case. We do a case once yep. a week where we just present a case. We're not reading it. This is a solved case, but this is a wackadoodle case. Mm-hmm. So we're pretty yeah, excited. Burn burner, it. as our dad would say. Yeah. Yes, it is burn burner. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually quite a bit of stuff in this case that makes me think of things our dad would say. Yeah. 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 But before we get started, Katie, how are you? <laughs> I am tired. I, I'm not tired. <laughs> my butt is tired. I um, I got in the car with my husband at one o'clock today to do a ride along with him on home inspections. He's a home inspector. And that, that's why we went on home inspection. Well, I would hope that, you know, that was sanctioned and not just for fun. Right. And we didn't get home until just a little while ago. So at any rate, I was in the car for seven hours. Yeah. Oh, yikes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I did a lot of TikToking. (laughs) Mostly. I did notice. I got a lot of TikToks from you. Mm hmm. Yep. Just, you know, there to, uh, you know, brighten his day with my sunny personality. So. (laughs) that's what I was there for (laughs) so I'm good damn I'll tell you what it was beautiful it was 42 degrees today which is amazing for us the sun was shining we rolled down the windows for a while it was gorgeous so that felt amazing I needed that I needed that yeah big dose of energy so yeah so I'm fine (laughs) well good I'm glad to hear it I'm very glad to hear it uh I'm okay I well I had shots in my SI joint this morning. That was yeah. not too pleasant. No. Um, but I'm doing okay. And I think that's going to be a good thing and help some problems I'm having in my low back. So really I'm good. I'm good. I'm working on being motivated and doing some new stuff. And you know, I, I watch for some more pop-ups. I did a pop-up a couple of weeks ago. I'm committing to doing some more of those. So it's just a a random unannounced live stream where yeah. I will share something for about 15 minutes. I did a dumb criminals one a couple of weeks ago. That was really fun. <laughs> I don't know why I like to laugh so much at dumb criminals, but I do. It is hilarious. It's because we, uh, in this, uh, work we're doing here, we uncover so much, just absolute true evil, you know? Mm-hmm. So the lighter ones, the dumb criminals, the one that's, you know, basically turned themselves in. I'm all about it. I, you know, I am too. And so I have a good time with it. So I'm going to be doing a couple more of those here coming up soon and just getting excited. You know, this podcast thing is a blast. I love it. Me too. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of loving it, we are going to present, this is quite an old case, mm-hmm. but you, you may have heard of it because it is quite famous. We're going to be talking tonight about the murder of Ken Rex McElroy from Skidmore, Skidmore, Missouri. Now, let me just give you the basic deets. And yes, last night, our nephew, we were talking about this case and he did blurt out skid mark. Yeah, yeah. we were all thinking it. Come on. Yeah, it's not nice to say, say but when you learn a little more about Skidmore, you kind of might go, I don't know. They should rename this town. They really should. They really should. They should rename. They should rebrand it. it they should. And we'll tell you why. Okay, so. Skidmore is a little town in Missouri. It's about 80 miles northwest of Kansas City. And there are between three and 400 residents there, kind of depending on when the census is taken. Yeah. 
Uh, so it's a very small place. This yeah. is one of those places where everyone knows everyone. I mean, you don't not know who your neighbors are when you live in a place that small, right? Right. Well, Ken Rex, and just, I've had a good laugh at this because that's what the, he, he went by. That's what people called him was Ken Rex. And that's a real kind of Southern thing. It's also kind of a backwoods Idaho thing. Mm-hmm. I can almost hear my dad and his Idaho twang, which he didn't always use, but when he did, you know, saying Ken Rex, you know, yeah. I mean, just can't hear it. So, oh yeah. Ken Rex was, well, he was known as the town bully, but I think that is a really kind word Dude, for what he's he really a town criminal. Yeah. yeah. He was the town career criminal who got and the away. town pedophile. Let's yes, say that. Pedophile. I mean, seriously, he um he had a real penchant for um hooking up with girls between like 12 and 14 and marrying them. That was something that he was a big fan of doing. Yeah. Um in 1971, he met his wife, Trina, who was at the time, she was 12. Yeah. She became pregnant a couple of years later as he had been dating her. Dating her? Dating a 12-year-old? Yeah. Yeah. Molesting her. You know, very much molesting her the first few years. Yes, molesting yeah. her. Um, so, of course, he mistreated her. And, and, and she plays a pretty important role later on in the story. And I, it's hard for me to blame her after all of this. So she became pregnant from McElroy and he had her with him when she had her baby, she had her son and she got really scared. And so she and his wife at the time, Alice ran to Trina's parents' house to get away from him. Well, he followed her there. He shot their dog and he burned their house down Mm -hmm. and uh, told them that, you know, if he didn't let, if they didn't let Trina marry him, that, you know, this is what they were going to get. Well, she was, he was physically abusing her. And so a local doctor um, reported her to, reported this to child protection because she's 14 at the time with a baby. So they put her in a foster home and they decide to charge him with molestation charges. Well, he finds out probably from his super fabulous, extra shiny attorney, Richard Jean McFadden, who is a villain in this story. Trust me, because he gets this guy off on everything. Um, it, it, it came out that if he would let, um, if he would marry Trina, that then they couldn't, uh, charge him with the molestation. So he goes to her parents' house and threatens them that he's going to burn their new house down if they don't. I think he also shot their new dog. Um, you know, there's some, there are some differences in stories depending on where you read this. And I've watched some documentaries too, but he threatened them with burning down their new house if they didn't get permission for him to marry Trina. Yeah. And so they did. Yep. So he married Trina. The what, divorced was, his wife and married yeah, Trina. Oh, that's right. He divorced his wife at the time, Alice, so that he could marry Trina. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of all lived together in this two, you know, in this kind sort of polygamous kind of situation. Mm-hmm. To, you know, to keep him out of jail. For- yeah. When he was for molesting. Yeah. 
Um, so, so this is the kind of guy we're talking about here. Okay. He's not a good person at all. Mm. He fathered about 10 children. 15 is what I had read. Yeah. See, I, there are different, um, there are different numbers in different places. So it is not known for sure, but at least 10, maybe 15 children. He was married, uh, five times. Mm -hmm. So he was really what he was, was he was the town criminal. Mm-hmm. He was a cattle rustler and a thief. He, anytime he got charged with anything he had done, he would threaten the witnesses with, you know, killing them, burning their houses down, stuff like that, which mm-hmm. he very clearly, you know, fully intended to do. And so they would not testify against him. And so, although he was charged with, in one place I read that he was charged with 37 felonies in his life, he mm-hmm. was only ever convicted of one. And that final one was ultimately his his undoing yeah but um the people in skidmore really felt like you know he could get away with anything he was Mm -hmm. exempt from the law and he clearly felt that he was well and he terrorized law enforcement too like everybody was scared to death of him yeah this why they didn't i don't know i mean there were so many things that they could have done with this guy other than what happened to him it's just crazy But so here's here's what happened with him. Here's how he died. So he um, on July 27th. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. In 1980, let's go to there. There's so many crimes to read about. I'm not going to read about them all. Just know that this guy committed so many just horrible things that he never got any blame for. So in 1980, one of his kids was accused of shoplifting in the local grocery store that was owned by the the Bowen Camp family, Bo and Lois Bowen Camp, who were in their 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, it was actually just the misunderstanding about penny candy. Like it was it very was, minor. Yeah, yeah, it was very minor. They thought it was solved, you know. So he comes in blowing snot around about you know, accusing his child and there's a big confrontation about it. Um, you know, and they try to like appease him, like, Hey, it's okay. This, you know, we're not mad. There's nothing to be mad about. So, um, you know, in true Ken Rex fashion, he started, um, stalking the bone camps, Mm -hmm. sit outside of their house or the store with Mm -hmm. his gun and occasionally fire it into the air just to scare him. Just so that they would know that he could do anything he wanted if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. So then one day, Mr. Bowen Camp is out behind the grocery store, like in their loading dock area. And McElroy comes up and shoots him in the neck. Yep. Now, Mr. Bowen Camp is in his 70s and he survived yep. this, which was amazing. But, mm-hmm. you know, McElroy finally... Somebody got some balls in this situation, I guess, because mm-hmm. McElroy was finally arrested and he was charged with attempted murder. Yeah. Uh, at his trial, he was convicted of assault. Yeah. So it was pled way down, way know, down at this point. And they freed him on bail pending his appeal because his attorney... Uh, you know, said immediately that they were going to appeal his charge Mm -hmm. or his conviction. 
So, you know, instead of holding him, you know, for the safety of yeah. Mr. Bowen Camp and the rest of the poor Skidmore residents, they let him go. Mm-hmm. Because this is just, you know, and a lot of this has to do with his attorney. Mm-hmm. And and his attorney would just defend him to the bitter end. It didn't matter what this idiot had done or even see him as a dangerous person, which is just. Well, and obviously very backwards uh, courts, you know, and prosecutors and so. like they just they. They didn't know what to do with this guy. They didn't. And so Richard G. McFadden, who is his attorney, is a catch-only attorney. He's um, one of those. He'll he'll defend anybody for anything if the price is right, basically. And pretty well known for that. Yeah. So, I mean, he gets out of jail, immediately goes to the D&G Tavern, which is the local bar there in Skidmore, armed with an M1 Garand rifle with a bayonet attached. Mm-hmm. He makes all these threats about what he's going to do to Bo Bowencamp and, you know, scares the hell out of everyone again. And of course is immediately violating his bail because he's got a gun. Mm-hmm. Do they put him back in jail? No, they do no. not. No. So his appeal hearing gets delayed twice. So we're now, this this originally happened in 1980. So now we're into July of 1981. Mm-hmm. And the, the townspeople are meeting because they are trying to figure out what to do with him. Mm-hmm. Now, they have had enough. They have had enough. They have. And the sheriff, Sheriff Estes, which by the way, the Estes family have been the sheriff in this town forever and still were for decades after. So they were frankly a big part of the problem, I think. Yeah. So uh, Sheriff Estes was there with them to talk. Well, this is when no one in Skidmore will tell the truth about anything. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows who was in that meeting. Boy, if you, I've read, I've watched many interviews with the people who lived in this town. They would not tell you Well, I wasn't at the meeting. I don't really remember. I don't know. I'm not sure yep. who was at the meeting. So Just, the sheriff then mysteriously leaves town for the day. Right. So they have this meeting where they discuss something to do with him. Mm-hmm. While they're in the meeting, this is at the Legion Hall. And so during the meeting, McElroy and his poor little wife, Trina, show up at the D&G tra- Tavern again. Mm-hmm. So they're in there drinking. And so word gets back to the people in Legion Hall that he's in town. Mm-hmm. So, supposedly, Sheriff Estes says, do not confront him. You know, he says that he told them that they need to form a neighborhood watch, mm-hmm. which, you know, would have been so useful in this situation. Right. No. Then he gets in his cruiser and he leaves town. Yeah. Because, you know, the serious bad guy of town who is out on bail after trying to kill the local grocer. You know, running around with a gun with a machete on it. Yeah. Yeah. And and now the townspeople know he's there. Like, this is definitely when law enforcement should just get out of town, right? Mm-hmm. So all the people who were supposedly in this meeting go to the D&G Tavern. They just basically fill up the bar. Mm-hmm. Kind of to let McElroy know they're there, obviously. So he and Trina are drinking. They don't seem too phased by the whole thing. Mm-hmm. They stay and drink for a while longer. Then he buys a six-pack of beer. They leave the bar, and they go and they get in his pickup. So then everybody who was in the bar files out into the street and they surround his truck 
So he and Trina are sitting in his pickup. And someone shoots McElroy. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, at least two someone's. Yeah, but pro- two it's, likely, yeah. it's likely that there were three shooters to actually hit him based mm-hmm. on what little forensic evidence they yeah. have. So slugs from two different guns yes, were pulled him. from him. Yeah. Yeah. So he was shot um, twice, once by a center fire rifle and once by a 22 rim fire rifle. There were 40 to 50 potential witnesses all standing right there when it happened, including mm-hmm. Trina, Mac- Trina McElroy, who was sitting next to him in the truck when he was shot. Mm-hmm. No one called for an ambulance or tried to help him in any way. They actually grabbed Trina and took her into the bank and basically threatened her and told her to just sit down and shut up mm-hmm. and just sort of drug her out of there for a while. Yeah. Um, eventually, the police were called. Mm-hmm. But by that time, everyone was gone and no one saw anything. Well, and none of all those people died. I think slumped over the steering wheel with his yeah. foot on the accelerator of his truck. Right. So the motor mm-hmm. is just revving and everyone just leaves walks away no one shut off the truck nothing trina claimed that she saw at least one of the gunmen that she knew one of the people who shot and she said his name was del clement so the police kind of work this case i don't know i mean basically they're hit by a brick wall in the town no one will talk no one saw Mm -hmm. anything no one has any idea who was there that day nothing they've no evidence Except for Trina's Trina's word. That's it. Trina's word. So the DA convenes a grand jury. Mm -hmm. The local convenes a grand jury. Of course, those are secret. We don't know what was said. We do know that Trina testified and said that Del Clement did it. And even though that happened, the grand jury came back with a refusal to indict. Even though, um, you know, Eyewitness sitting next to her husband says Del Clement shot him. They would not indict him. They said they're not in the business of uh, just going to trial just for fun. If there's nothing, you know, if there's no evidence, there's no reason to go to trial and there's not. So we're not doing it. Yeah. So Trina and uh, Ken Rex's attorney go to the FBI. And the FBI gets involved. They do an investigation. Then there is a second uh, grand jury, a federal one, in which they give all the same evidence again. They also refuse to indict. Mm -hmm. Now, I've watched a lot of footage of Trina, and I can kind of understand it. Trina seems to have, you know, probably a pretty low IQ. She's not Mm -hmm. the sharpest. But they... Why they didn't believe the wife of the victim that was sitting next to him, I I don't know. The federal one is the one that really puzzles me. Mm-hmm. The local one, it doesn't surprise me at all because they had all right. had an asshole of this guy. Right. And they, they like, frankly did not care. Yeah. 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 Didn't care. But the federal one, why didn't they indict? It just is so weird to me. They have an eyewitness. Um, supposedly, they never found the guns that were used, they just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the people that I saw interviewed said that they were taken off to like Wyoming or something that somebody mm-hmm. just loaded them up in their car and drove away with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a lot of things done to keep this story quiet. Mm-hmm. It has been 40 years since he was yep. killed, almost 40 in July. And still no one has ever talked. Yep. 
Now, the um, the documentary that I watched based on this case that I found really interesting is called No One Saw a Thing. Mm-hmm. It's a Sundance documentary, and it's really good. And it's full of interviews. And there are several people interviewed who say, um, this town knows exactly who killed him, and they mm-hmm. will never tell. And 40 years later, many of those people are probably dead at this point. Right. Well, and law enforcement just completely failed to protect the people in this town until they finally felt like they had to protect themselves. You know, and I'm not saying that vigilante justice is the way, but it's not that these people didn't try, you know, because they had been trying for many years. And Mm -hmm. he was murdering their animals, stealing their, you know, animals from their farms, burning their homes down, burning their businesses down, shooting people, you know, and there was absolutely no recourse. Molesting girls, threatening everyone. Yeah, no recourse. So ultimately what happened is that Trina McElroy in 1984 filed a $5 million wrongful death lawsuit against the town of Skidmore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the sheriff, Danny Estes, Steve Peters, who was the mayor, and Del Clement, who mm-hmm. she accused of being a shooter, but, you know, never got charged. Mm-hmm. The case was later settled out of court by all parties for $17,600. No one admitted guilt. Yeah. And they said that the only reason that they settled, and she settled for that tiny amount of money, apparently, um, was because they wanted to avoid the legal fees that the suit would um, cost. Yep. You know, the sad thing here is that Kenrex had children. Yeah. And Kenrex's children are seriously hurt by this whole thing and still yeah. are speaking out about it, you know, and, and, and they do acknowledge that there was abuse in their childhoods. They do acknowledge that their dad did some bad stuff, but they are pretty flummoxed by the fact that nobody cared when he was murdered. Yeah. And it is, this is a scary line to cross. Yeah. You know, vigilante justice mm-hmm. is, scary line to cross mm-hmm. you know i mean they did to him the thing that he had been doing to them yeah i don't know yeah. that an eye for an eye solves anything really I know. you know also Not- the people who killed him weren't killers they no. weren't murderers they weren't people who typically would have done things like that and yet in this case they did and they had to live with that for the rest of their lives they did. And, you know, people in the town talk even still now about mm-hmm. how that murder changed everything in their community. Yeah. It changed them. It changed everyone. It changed their town. No one was ever the same again after mm-hmm. that. And people were afraid. Oh, yeah. Because they didn't know who they could trust. And not everybody was on the side of it was okay to murder this guy. Mm-hmm. And now they were afraid of, you know, some of our neighbors, you know, were okay with committing this murder. And, you know, so that it became a very fearful place and it became, mm-hmm. they got a lot of attention for it and not in a good way. You know, there's been a lot of coverage of this case over the years and several documentaries and books and stuff. And um, yeah, it, in a lot of ways, many people say this ruined this community. Yeah. And some yeah. people believe that Skidmore, Missouri is now cursed. And, right. and, you know, cursed is, you know, what does that word really mean? But that bad, terrible things happen there. And remember, this is still a tiny place. Even now, there's only yeah. about 400 people that live there. It's yeah. a tiny little place. 
Yeah. One of the things that I found found really striking was that at one point, police busted eleven meth labs in Scala, yeah. Missouri. Yeah, eleven population three hundred ish. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine that? No, I mean that's got to be like every fifth house or something. I mean that's crazy. Uh, how many meth labs there, you know, so meth had become a really huge problem because they, they don't have no industry. All they have is um, farming. And yeah. so people who stay in the town, you know, kids who grow up and stay in the town, if they don't grow up in farm families, or if they don't take on the family farm, they don't have anything. There's nothing mm-hmm. there for them, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so we wanted to talk about a few of the other cases since Ken Rex's murder that have yeah. happened in this town because there are some very famous cases that have yeah. happened. In, well, one particularly very famous case that's happened in this town. So Katie, right. I know you had several of those if you want to talk about them. Yeah. So let's talk about Wendy Gillenwater. Okay. So in October of 2000, Wendy Gillenwater, she was 19 And she, of course, lived in Skidmore, uh, had moved in with her boyfriend, a guy named Gregory Dragu. And he was a real piece of work. He was really violent. He was really controlling. Uh, He immediately isolated her from her family and her friends, um, you know, typical domestic violence stuff. He was also a well-known heavy drug user. Uh, You know, I'm going to say probably a meth addict judging by this town and the issues that they had. But uh, she just had a really hard time getting out of this relationship. And finally, uh, there was a 911 call to the house on October 16th. The police got there and he is sitting on the front steps uh, waiting for them to come and take him into custody. And Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, he got mad at Wendy and lost all control and literally beat her to death with his bare hands. Oh, my God. There are some accounts that he actually drug her up and down the street uh, with his truck, chained to the back of his truck. Uh, but that's not so totally substantiated. But he did. Uh, basically, he stomped her to death. His feet were covered in bruises from the amount of kicking he did to her. Oh, my so, God. She suffered six rib fractures on her right side and eight on her left. Her lungs were lacerated and collapsed. Her liver was lacerated and she suffered extensive internal trauma and bleeding to the point that she died. He also forced her to drink dishwashing liquid and then drug her body out into the yard. Uh, That's when a neighbor saw what was going on and called the police. And then he just literally sat on the steps until the police came to get him. So the police, or, you know, the EMTs came, they tried to save her, but she was gone. I mean, she had, was full of internal lacerations and injuries. My God. And that was in what year? That was in 2000. Her, okay. she was beaten so badly that her mother identified her body by the rings on her fingers. Oh my God. That's horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. Yep. Absolutely terrible. Yeah. So then we have, yeah, this is a really famous case. Mm-hmm. 
this happened in 2004. This is Bobby Joe Stinnett. And you might have heard of this case. I am well aware of this case. I was blown away when I discovered that this case happened in Skidmore, Missouri. This happened in the same town. Mm-hmm. So this was in 2004. She was found strangled. And her unborn child, she was eight months pregnant at the time, had been cut from her body. Mm-hmm. And the baby was missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was quite a manhunt for who had done this. And they did eventually, thanks to uh, an Amber Alert they put out. Now, there was a really hard, they had a really hard time putting out an Amber Alert and were orig- originally declined the right to get put out an Amber Alert because they couldn't give a description of the baby. Because Mm -hmm. the baby hadn't been born yet. Nobody had ever seen it. Like, they didn't know how to say, you know, you know, premature baby, brand new. You know, they wanted, like, height and weight and hair color and eye color. It was really kind of a dumb thing that went on between um, the local sheriff and the state. And finally, eventually, he got his Amber Alert. And when they got the Amber Alert, there had been a witness that saw a car. That was a red a red car that was in the area that looked like maybe it was driving erratically. So they had that. Well, eventually, in another state, they um, somebody turns in a woman who was using a fake name at the time, but her name was actually Lisa Marie Montgomery. She mm-hmm. was thirty six, and they did find her when they found her. She had the baby with her. Yeah, and the baby actually was okay. Survived this. Yeah, which is stunning to me. Mm-hmm. And just out of it, just because it's interesting, Lisa Marie Montgomery has been on death row since 2007 for this. And mm-hmm. this was a federal crime. Yeah. And um, Donald Trump restarted federal executions um, right. during his presidency. Well, Lisa Marie Montgomery's execution came up. She was due to be executed right at the end of the year. And she got a stay of execution because her attorneys got COVID and were unable to file any last um, appeals appeals and stuff. So she was not executed and she is still sitting on death row. And I don't know what's going to happen now with this administration because the federal um, death penalty had not been in action for, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what's going to happen now, but rather interesting. But that's why I was aware of this case and had just been reminding myself of the Bobby Joe Stinnett case. And then this all came up and it, I realized that they happened in the same town. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and sta- sandwiched in between those two cases. So that happened in 04. Yeah. And uh, Wendy uh, Gillenwater was, of course, uh, killed in 2000. In 2001 in the same town we had we have a missing boy yeah so this is Branson Perry Branson uh he uh he was actually born the same year that uh McElroy was murdered interestingly but um so he lived with his dad and at some point when he was about 18 it looks like on uh April 7th 2001 his dad uh, ended up in the hospital, and when he was about to get out, uh, he had told his dad, right before his dad went in the hospital, he had told him 
that a neighbor had drugged him and raped him, a, a man. And uh, so there had been this big upset, you know, when he had said this and, and dad hadn't really done anything about it because he ended up in the hospital. And so there was kind of this pending situation happening. Mm-hmm. Well, so they hadn't actually reported the sexual assault to the police, though there was some intent to do that when, but dad ended up in the hospital. So four days later on April 11th, uh, Branson asked a few friends to come over and help him clean up the house and fix his dad's car before he got out of uh, the hospital. So his friend Gina and came over and helped clean the house and two uh, unidentified males came over to help replace the alternator on his dad's car. About three o'clock, he tells Gina he's going to go out to put some jumper cables away that were in the shed that needed to go into the shed by the house. And he vanished. Yeah. Never came back in. None of his stuff was gone. He just vanished. So the friends just kind of, uh, he never came back in the house and they thought maybe he just went somewhere else or left. So they just went home. Didn't say anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. So the next day, his mom stops by. He didn't, she didn't live there. His parents were divorced, but she stops by the house to check on him. The house is unlocked. She just feels weird about the fact that it's unlocked and there's no one there. Mm-hmm. And gets a hold of dad who is still in the hospital, had a delay of discharge and was still in the hospital. He didn't know that, uh, you know, he was missing. And so they finally report uh, dad's released from the hospital on April 17th. And he finally reports him missing. So he goes missing on April 11th, isn't reported missing until April 17th because of the way this is all playing out. So there's a pretty good manhunt for him. They search all of the fields around the oil wells, outhouses. They dig up some farmers' fields in neighboring towns because of, uh, you know, some leads that they got. But he was never found. Yeah. They also couldn't find the jumper cables that he headed to the shed with. So he never made it to the shed somehow. Uh, and they still have no idea what happened. A few months after he went missing, those jumper cables showed up in their shed. Oh, did they really? Oh, the article I read didn't say that. Wow. It was in the documentary that I watched. Mm -hmm. Wow. That his said that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and these are just a few of the cases that we identified, but, uh, you know, this suicides and there were some suicides not long after Ken Rex McElroy died. Mm-hmm. And some people think that some of those suicides may actually have been related to his death. Yes. But there's not yeah. ever been any proof of that because again, who talks in Skidmore? Nobody. That's nobody. Who. No one. Nope. No. No. So. They kept all those secrets. But look at the the dysfunction in this place. Yeah. Just these cases in a town that small. Yeah. I mean, this is a lot of mayhem for a town the size I live in, it's 60,000 people. I can't imagine this kind of mayhem in a 400-person town. Yeah. You know, it's it's just insane. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Can we get a picture of... Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm falling down on my details here. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, there's Branson. Yeah. The um, the police in the area believe that they know exactly what happened to Branson. 
mm-hmm. and that they know who killed him and that this was he was involved in the trafficking of methamphetamine in the area. And they say they know exactly who did it, but they don't have any witnesses, excuse me, who will talk to them to Weird. get the not to, in yeah, this town. Yeah. To get the information that they need in order to actually charge someone. At one point they thought they knew where his body was and yeah. dug up a place that they believe now his body had been there and then it was moved. Mm-hmm. Because they had they did finally have an informant tell them that they we're pretty sure they knew where he was buried, but they didn't actually find his body. It's Crazy. so wild. So you know, the I got, big question remains. Yeah. Is this town, town cursed or haunted or what the hell? You know, because it's a, it's sure a troubled town. Yeah, it surely is a troubled town. I, I feel like if you commit a public murder, and get away with a public murder. What does that say to the people in your community? You know? Yeah. What kind of message is that teaching people? And then when no one will speak up, you know, because just like the things that Ken Rex McElroy did were wrong. So was this, you can't, you know, this is, you can't fight violence with violence. It doesn't work. We know it. And this idea of secrecy in this town that you just don't talk, you don't tell. Mm-hmm. And, I remember the short story that we all probably had to read in like junior high, the lottery. Yeah. This is the lottery town. You know? This is the lottery town. Yeah. Yeah. And so that idea that then there are these huge secrets that have to be kept forever. Yeah. And maybe they're passed down to continue to be kept. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think the energy of that, I don't feel that this is more a supernatural problem as it is a cultural problem in this mm-hmm. town. I mean, does the energy of this town suck? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I don't know if there's enough stage to burn in this place. town, really. But, right. Yeah. Right. Definitely. But that is quite a precedent to set mm-hmm. that it's okay to murder the town bully. And that that many people knew, that many people were present and kept that. I mean, that's, there were about 300 people in the town at the time and around 50 of them witnessed this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a large percentage of the people who live there. Yeah. You know, that kind of, that kind of thing will rot people's minds and hearts and, you know. Well, and it created so much distrust. It created all of this, uh, you know, the chaos with his wife and with his children. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, the offshoots of getting rid of this guy, though, uh, you know, their their intentions were, you know, noble. It, what it's created, yes, is just nonstop. His children were brought out of town. They were hassled and harassed until they had to move away. Yeah. They couldn't continue to live there. It wasn't safe for them. And that is wrong. I mean, that that tells you that there's more to this story and that there's Mm -hmm. more to the problem in this town. If it was really just about him, why would they hassle his kids? It wasn't their fault, you know? Or were his kids hassling them? I mean, it's hard for me to look at all of it and not go, I mean, how much were how much were his children like him, you know? Right. And they were to some extent, and so were his wives. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, you know, but again, they were just kids, right? They, they were just raised kids. in this mess, you know, but the, the yeah. town certainly did not rally around them to try to help and support them after their father no. was killed. 
They did just the opposite. No, they wanted them gone. Yeah, they did. for sure. So what does this town need? It's my opinion that they should rename. I agree. I agree. Rename. Give yourself a town motto. Um, do some sprucing up, you know, change mm -hmm. who they are. Mm -hmm. Change the energy of it. Yeah. Rather than being famous for all of this horrible stuff. Yeah. You know, because in the midst of all of this are some very resilient people. Right. Who yeah. have lived through some horrendous things. And maybe if they could rebrand their community that way, yeah. maybe it would be better. If you're listening, Skidmore, it starts with a new name. <laughs> right. It does. I absolutely believe that it does. It, it's it's this is a clearing out of the old, creating space for the new, yeah. you know. And yep, yeah, it, it's awful. It makes just me makes me sad for all of the people that do live there who are, you know, just want to have normal, happy lives. And there's just so much. There's such yeah. a dark cloud over this town. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying that there aren't people that live here who probably have had normal, happy lives. I hope that's true, mm -hmm. you know, but at the end of the day, I wouldn't want to live there. I wouldn't no. live there. Mm -mm. No, but I, it's easy for me to say that, but people, you know, on heritage farms, you know, whose families have lived there for many, many generations, they, they're right. going to stay people who are in a state of poverty that really can't just up and move. They're going to stay, right. you know, it's right. easy to say, I'd just get the hell out, but maybe I wouldn't, you know? Right. You don't know because yeah, there are, you know, there are a lot of reasons why some people stay. Mm -hmm. Sure. All right. Well, friends, that is our story. Yeah. And we're sticking so to it. We are sticking to it. <laughs> I do really, really recommend uh, No One Saw a Thing, mm -hmm. which is the, the documentary. There are several, but this this documentary covers not only the Kenrex Macklemore story, but some of these other stories we've talked about yeah. in the history of this town. And it's very, very interesting. And so I recommend that very much. But thank you for joining us. This is our Tuesday show. Yeah. which means that we have another case. It's our MMIW case for the week is coming up tomorrow. Yeah. And then um, also on Wednesday night, we'll be doing our live stream case updates. We have some stuff to talk about with the mask case. So we yeah. want to share that. Yep. And it's a very interesting solved case. Yes. Yes. A very interesting solved case. And then what you know, Thursday DNA course, for the win. Yep. You know, my favorite kind. I'm, I'm loving all the DNA stuff. And then Thursday is our uh, Thursday night psychic hour and it is the first show of the month. So of course we are going to be doing marching orders for the month of February. Absolutely. So, thank you so much for joining us. We have been true crime paranormal with the psychic sisters. Thanks guys. Thanks, guys. Hi, I'm Christy Brower, podcaster and professional psychic. I have spent the last 14 years honing my skills as a psychic and a healer. I work on the Purple Ocean app. You can find it in any of the app stores. And I am available every day for video and chat readings. I specialize in pattern breaking, uh, particularly in relationships, but really in any area of your life. If you're feeling stuck and like you can't move on or you can't let something go, I am the reader for you. That is exactly what I focus on. It's what I love to do. I love to help stuck people get moving and I've been doing it for many years and have been very successful at it and can do that for you as well. So if you are having trouble letting go of a relationship 
or a fear or a challenge of any kind in your life, come see me at Purple Ocean and we will do everything we can, me and my guidance system and my intuition and you, because it's always a package deal that we work together, but we will find a way to break that pattern for you. So come see me over at Purple Ocean and let's break your patterns. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can always like and subscribe there as well. We also love comments and reviews. True Crime Paranormal is hosted by Katie Weaver and Christy Brower and produced by Christy Brower. True Crime Paranormal is a short girl productions podcast.